Good evening, everybody, and thank you all for coming. My name is Ruth Kattamuri, and I'm the co-director of the Asia Research Center. In case any of you are wondering about my identity, I consider myself a global citizen. So, We also have with us Professor Sumantra Bose, who has worked extensively on the issues that we are focusing today, and he's going to give his thoughts um, just after, the, uh, after Douglas Alexander speaks. I'd like to specially thank our speaker this evening, the Shadow Foreign Secretary in the UK, Mr. Douglas Alexander. In today's world, we can access any information about our MPs online, so I'm not going to read out his bio to you. However, I would like to highlight some things which I found impressive. He's had an international background from a very young age. He seems to have decided, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Douglas, on a political career even as a teenager. He's had consistently, he has been consistently successful in his personal political career from the time he entered politics in his late 20s. He could be talking to us today on several issues and has done so on other occasions at the LSE, but today he will present his thoughts about Pakistan and the challenges in the new decade. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you. It's a great pleasure to be back at the London School of Economics. Thank you for that kind introduction, and it's a genuine pleasure to be sharing the platform with such distinguished academics. It's also very kind of you to invite me to speak here this evening about a country which I believe will come to have a dominant role in our thinking about a range of international challenges in the years ahead. Now, as the Shadow Foreign Secretary, you're of course obliged to consider the immediate foreign policy challenges that confront the United Kingdom. Of course, as we've seen in recent days, indeed today, our relationship with Europe weighs heavily on people's minds, also trying to ensure the positive energy of the Arab Spring isn't frustrated in countries like Tunisia, Egypt and Libya. And of course, our thoughts continue to be with the ongoing conflict in Afghanistan, where 10,000 brave British men and women serve in our armed forces. But alongside these immediate challenges, there is also an obligation on you as the Shadow Foreign Secretary to start to think about what will be the key foreign policy questions around the time that is expected to be the next general election in 2015. And it is partly through engagement in one of our current challenges, that which I mentioned in Afghanistan, that I've come to believe strongly that Pakistan will be high up in the intrigue of whoever becomes Foreign Secretary in and around 2015. Pakistan, of course, faces huge challenges. Today it is facing a perfect storm of economic, security and political crises and Britain will surely be unable to isolate itself from the consequences. Nuclear-armed Pakistan is already uh, the country with the sixth largest population on Earth and the sixth largest army anywhere in the world. Its economy today is struggling. Since its first military coup in 1958, its governance has been erratic, and its history has been marked by violence. Today, 43 million of its citizens still live lives diminished by extreme poverty. Repeated coups have marred Pakistan's history, and the Pakistan Taliban has emerged with the stated purpose of establishing an Islamic emirate based on Sharia law within the boundaries of the country. 
groups such as the Hakani Network and Lashkar-e Toiba, once seen by the security apparatus within Pakistan as strategic assets, have turned into strategic threats. Now, thankfully, terror attacks emanating from Pakistan have so far not proved a terrible showdown either with the West or with India. But how long can this situation last in such circumstances? Now, of course, on the other hand, there are signs of real hope. The University of Maryland polling data shows that in 2007, the most recent year for which figures are available, only a third of Pakistanis viewed the activities of Islamic extremists in Pakistan as a critical threat, whereas in 2009 the figure rose to 4 out of 5 or 81%. A similar number, 82%, pointed to al-Qaeda's activity in Pakistan as a critical threat to the future of the country. So although al-Qaeda's view of America gets a sympathetic hearing in too many quarters within Pakistan, including a significant minority who support its attacks, there is a growing realisation of the threat posed to Pakistan by the terrorist groups that themselves reside there. And we should also note that Pakistan's military has carried out effective anti-militant exercises in the Swat Valley and in the Fatah, reflecting the understanding of the real and present danger that is now confronting the country. Now, in the recent past, Pakistan has looked to its relationship with the United States as a route to solving these problems, but that partnership is today under severe strain with recriminations and distrust on both sides. The political and military elites in Pakistan have still not fully grasped the extent to which the 10-year anniversary of 9-11 and the killing of Osama bin Laden have affected profoundly public sentiment across the West. There is plenty of evidence of this. Admiral Mike McMullen, the US retiring Chief of Staff, recently testified before a Senate committee that the Haqqani network in Afghanistan is, and I quote directly, a veritable arm of Pakistan, and that caused shock and alarm across the country. The remarks were widely interpreted as an accusation by the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff that Pakistan's military and espionage agencies sanction and direct attacks against United States troops in Afghanistan. Before a visit to Islamabad just last week, U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton warned Pakistan to eradicate terrorist camps inside its border, saying there would be a very big price for inaction against military groups staging attacks on NATO forces in Afghanistan. And indeed, during her visit, Secretary Clinton was confronted by a woman at a question-and-answer session who likened America's behaviour to that of a mother-in-law. We are trying to please you, and every time you come and visit us, you tell us you're not doing enough, you need to work harder. While there, Secretary Clinton made clear that Pakistan faced a decisive choice. She said, we asked very specifically for greater cooperation from the Pakistani side to squeeze the Haqqani network and other terrorists because we know that trying to eliminate terrorists and safe havens on one side of the border is simply not going to work. And she added, you know, it's like the old story, you can't keep snakes in your backyard and expect them only to bite your neighbours. But despite the heat in the relationship, and despite the offence taken by those remarks, it is difficult to detect any real understanding in Pakistan about the factors behind this increasingly tough rhetoric. If you speak to American foreign policy officials, you encounter a keen desire to bring troops home from Afghanistan, and an unwillingness to give Pakistan any benefit of the doubt over its relationship with extremism.
It is said that an image is worth a thousand words. And on May the 2nd of this year, the image of bin Laden's hideout in Abbottabad, just yards from Pakistan's military academy, seared itself onto the consciousness of millions of people around the world. The camera shots that showed reporters outside bin Laden's hiding place and then panning slowly round to show you the military buildings were a very visual and graphic representation of something that has long been a topic of intense debate amongst the policy elites. As a result, the two sides appear at this time to be drifting further apart. Pakistan feels angry at being accused of directly orchestrating groups such as the Haqqani Network to kill coalition forces. It feels its sovereignty increasingly violated both by bin Laden's raid and increased drone strikes, while America fears incompetence or worse collusion from the Pakistani security apparatus is imperiling the mission in Afghanistan and risking the lives of their forces. The dangerous product of this is that some in Washington now seek to downgrade America's strategic relationship with Pakistan to a purely transactional one, and instead place even greater reliance on drone strikes to disrupt terrorist groups on both sides of the Durand line. One American official told me that they felt the pretense of being friends with Pakistan was now causing itself a problem. The attempts at friendship led to huge fallings out and bitter disappointments, when incidents like the Bin Laden raid or the Mullen testimony actually occurred. The official suggested a new way forward based not on friendship but on a more contractual arrangement would take some of the heat out of the two countries' dealings with each other. But if Pakistan therefore faces an international crossroads, Britain faces such a crossroads as well. The character of Britain's relationship and exposure to Pakistan's problems means that we do not have the luxury of isolating ourselves from them. In time, some argue it will be possible to largely isolate ourselves from Afghanistan once British combat operations come to an end in 2014 and responsibility for security is transferred to Afghan forces in 2015. But even if you believe future isolation from Afghanistan's problems is possible, there is simply no credible way of Britain achieving that with Pakistan. You only have to take one of the many crowded flights between Islamabad and Heathrow to realise how closely bound together are our two nations. Britain has the largest Pakistani diaspora community anywhere in the world. 900,000 British citizens are of Pakistani heritage. So what therefore should Britain's response be to the present challenges? What would a response look like that learns the right lessons from the last 10 years and that matches our ambitions to our capabilities. It begins by recognising that whatever the frustrations and disappointments of working with Pakistan, the alternative is frankly worse. Our own security interests are at stake and we cannot simply walk away. We should recognise that the future of Pakistan will be decided first and foremost by the actions of its own youthful population. In my time as the International Development Secretary in the last government, I ordered aid to the poorest Pakistanis to be doubled and our programme be rebalanced towards an emphasis on education within Pakistan. And I'm glad to say that the current government deserves credit for continuing that work. Education can be a game changer because the main competitors with the worst state schools are the madrasas, which are an attractive option for any people as they provide free food and clothes for children as well. Now, I was taken to a madrasa in Peshawar several years ago. Clearly, a British minister would not have been shown one that was particularly extreme. But if I'm honest with you, what worried me was not the teaching of a perverted form of Islam, 
but that children were leaving without any of the necessary skills required to get on and indeed to get work. Let me turn to the issue of Afghanistan because it is itself so closely related to Pakistan's future. Afghanistan is of course crucial both to Pakistan's future and to Britain's security. There has been a notable shift in recent months. Conversations used to start about Afghanistan and end with a discussion about Pakistan. Now increasingly they begin with Pakistan and end with a discussion on Afghanistan. President Obama's plan sees NATO forces step back as Afghan forces step up. The transition timetable has been set and drawdown is now underway. It seems to me very unlikely that this is going to change significantly, given public support for transition and the fact that already more than 10,000, uh, sorry, 100,000 British Armed Forces personnel have undertaken at least one tour of duty in Afghanistan during a conflict that's now lasted at least a decade. The question now is how to achieve a stable and lasting end state by the defined end date, not least because 10 years on the condition of Afghanistan continues to affect the security of the region. I have been arguing since my time in government that renewed diplomatic and political momentum needs to be found that can take forward a political settlement within the country that is inclusive to all the tribes but excluding Al-Qaeda. The British government have said recently that they are supportive of this process and they will have the backing of the opposition in taking that difficult and challenging work forward. It is the sustained military pressure that British and other NATO forces have applied that has made this even a possibility. But even military commanders like General David Petraeus have always stressed that you can't kill or capture your way out of an industrial scale insurgency. So work could and should be underway now to try and ensure long-term security guarantees that Afghanistan will not host Al-Qaeda again in the future. For example, a status of forces agreement to regulate any continuing role should now be under discussion. At the London conference in 2010, the Afghan High Peace Council was established and that should continue to work to reach a consensus on constitutional arrangements and ensure in particular that women have a continuing and proper role in Afghanistan's future. It is likely that Afghanistan's thousands of villages and valleys will need a less no it's all actually will have a less centralized system that the present constitution and that is a process which should certainly be explored as part of the ongoing work. Britain will be required to exercise its diplomatic influence to try and ensure Pakistan's leadership recognizes that terrorism and violent extremism have become the most immediate and pressing threat facing the Pakistan state. And of course, continued cooperation on counterterrorism and the continued vigilance and professionalism of our intelligence agencies are hugely important. But beyond that, we have to bring other countries to the table as we look to help Pakistan solve its immediate problems. Bringing in the regional players to help ensure a stable end state in Afghanistan is of course also critical to Pakistan's stability. Pakistan, just like China, Russia, India, and the Central Asian Republics and Iran would be ill-served by a chaotic Afghanistan that is a stage for the kind of problems seen after Soviet troop withdrawal back in 1989. So as many countries as possible should be brought into the discussions about Afghanistan's future. In Pakistan, the old orthodoxy that India remains its greatest threat still endures. Instead of looking west, Pakistan continues to overwhelmingly look east. 
One Pakistani politician told me that Westerners often failed to fully appreciate how much the need for what is described as strategic depth, the ability to retreat into Afghanistan and launch attacks on an invading Indian army from there, is drummed into the Pakistani military at all stages of their training. And it is true that this anxiety and approach still endures. But Pakistan's thinking now risks being left behind by events both inside and beyond its own borders. Internally, the threat of violent extremism, as I've sought to demonstrate, has grown. Externally, the global rise of India continues apace. And of course, the economic and security problems of that region are closely linked. Meeting business leaders recently in Islamabad, I was very struck by how many had recently themselves been in India to grow their companies and how much they wanted their politicians to make that an easier endeavour. If Britain, along with regional players, could play a part in creating the space for further steps towards cooperation and understanding between the two countries, I believe it would be one of the most single important steps that we could take to contribute to global security. And we can continuously try to put Pakistan on the Brussels agenda. We have the strongest links, but through the European Union we can offer bigger carrots and bigger sticks. On the one hand, supporting progress with further trade agreements with Pakistan, but equally being willing to impose individual sanctions and asset freezes on anyone, including individuals within the security apparatus, who are suspected of not helping efforts to clamp down on violent extremists within or beyond Pakistan's borders. Through the European Union, we should encourage countries like America to modify their trade policy to allow more Pakistani-made textiles to be sold in a global marketplace. And rather than being played off against each other, the European Union and America should approach China and Saudi Arabia with the view to a joint approach that could breathe new life into the Friends of a Democratic Pakistan group launched at the United Nations back in 2008. But let's be honest, Pakistan has the largest role to play in solving the problems I've discussed this evening. But these efforts will matter not as much as the efforts Pakistan's own political leadership makes to solve Pakistan's problems. Pakistan's many friends within the United Kingdom still wait for a big positive vision from a Pakistani politician setting out how they see their country and its place in the region over the coming decades. We might not agree with all of it, but it would surely be better than the present situation. The current inertia is so frustrating for Pakistan's friends in the international community that it's time for Pakistan to choose a way forward and then its friends to back it as best it can. Our concern should be to support the institutions of democracy within Pakistan by which such leadership can emerge. Britain's aim should be to learn the lessons of recent decades and ensure we encourage that sort of political discourse rather than undermine it. Because I believe that concerns about Pakistan will come to weigh more heavily in the minds of British policymakers in the next 10 years than even our concerns about Afghanistan. I'm very grateful for the opportunity to share these remarks with you this evening, and I look forward to the opportunity to now take your questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was very interesting. Um, and now ask Suman uh, Well, I'm not uh, a second speaker, so uh, you won't have to listen to a second speech from me. Um, <clears throat> I'm supposed to be a discussant to provide a short uh, comment on the topic we are discussing today. 
first of all, thank you very much to Douglas Alexander for a very clear, compelling, and uh, timely lecture. We are really happy to have you here at the LSE and hope you'll come back repeatedly in, <coughs> in the near future. Mm. Um, let me keep my comment you know, short and sweet and focus it on a few remarks about the uh, India-Pakistan relationship, which of course uh, has always been and remains the pivotal relationship in South Asia. Um, just in the last few days, I was uh, leafing through uh, a new book uh, ominously titled The Unraveling, and the subtitle is Pakistan in the Age of Jihad. And as many of you probably know, um, these books are a dime a dozen these days. Uh, it's a growth industry um, for obvious reasons. But this is one of the better books. It's written by a retired uh, State uh, Department uh, official who has uh, had significant work experience in Pakistan and clearly harbors friendly feelings towards the country and its people. But his account is extremely pessimistic and uh, he's not alone. There are other South Asia hands in Washington, very seasoned people, um, who um, have a history and a present of wishing Pakistan well, but are extremely pessimistic about uh, its prospects at the moment. Um, about the India-Pakistan relationship, I'm afraid that I share the pessimism that seems to be engulfing us all. Um, and there are three reasons why I'm extremely pessimistic about any realistic prospects of uh, progress for the better in the India-Pakistan relationship uh, leading to a rapprochement between the two countries. Um, and again, um, I'm on the dovish side. Um, my writings are clearly of a dovish nature. Uh, I've long argued for uh, a substan substantial and structural improvement in the relationship. I've argued in favor of a negotiated compromise settlement to the Kashmir dispute and so on. So my own pedigree is uh, that of a dove, at least relatively speaking, and not a hawk. But there are three reasons why I'm very pessimistic. You know, first of all, the political systems, the systems of authority in the two countries are just vastly different. And this needn't be a problem, um, at least I argued as much uh, about a decade ago, but I'm afraid it is a problem. Um, and I'll go back to this point uh, you know, uh, a little later. The second reason why I'm pessimistic is that the asymmetry in status and stature between the two countries is already very significant and is widening more and more as we speak. Um, again, this needn't be a problem in itself, but combined with other factors, I believe it is. My third point, which relates to the first point of you know, systemic uh, difference, um, is uh, lack of leadership and internal dynamics. Um, on the Pakistani side, of course, uh, decisions on all major matters, particularly pertaining to India, to Kashmir, to Afghanistan, um, have always been, well, at least for 50 years or more, in the hands of the military. And I see no sign of uh, any willingness in the Pakistani military to um, 
take the major steps that would be necessary to effect um, a significant improvement in relations with India, leading to a rapprochement of sorts down the road. Um, on the Indian side, there is a similar problem, um, but let me say a bit more about the lack of leadership on the Pakistani side, given that the military and its leadership, um, especially the core commanders, are the key decision makers here. There was some progress in the so-called back channel a few years ago uh, between the Indian government and the Musharraf regime. But all that you know, apparently came to naught as uh, Musharraf fell rather precipitously from power. And then, of course, uh, the Mumbai attack happened um, towards the end of 2008, um, clearly planned and staged by the lashkar e taiba mm -hmm. uh, with uh, possible um, ISI involvement and even sponsorship. And um, things went back to square one. So a military leader in, it, in himself is not a problem. However, um, well, there's a question of timing. The window of opportunity doesn't last long. Uh, it closed with Musharraf's fall and the Mumbai attack. Um, on the Indian side, of course, the one political leader who in the last uh, decade and slightly more uh, has repeatedly made, had repeatedly made attempts to mend the India-Pakistan relationship was Atal Bihari Vajpayee, the Prime Minister of India from 1998 to 2004. Uh, he clearly had some sort of a vision for peace in the subcontinent, although being a famously cagey guy, you know, he didn't really make it explicit. But his actions in you know, repeatedly reaching out to Pakistan um, and its leaders um, spoke for itself. And, of course, it was easier for a person like Vajpayee, a moderate politician of the right, to make these moves, you know, without being attacked, you know, outflanked um, from, um, uh, from the other side of the political spectrum. Um, not so now. Uh, in India, currently, we have probably the weakest prime minister in the history of India. And he is not uh, a man of the, of the right, so he lacks the advantage that uh, Vajpayee did have when he was in power. Um, okay, so that's my um, gloomy summary of the, uh, and prognosis for the India-Pakistan relationship and the reasons uh, in outline for uh, my deep pessimism. There is, of course, Afghanistan, and uh, that is an additional major irritant uh, to an already you know, troubled relationship. Um, we all know that over the past decade, since September, October 2001, uh, India has made a very significant uh, financial commitment to Afghanistan. Um, and uh, it's a huge financial commitment for a developing country, even a large developing country that's uh, a rising power in the world. And most of you will know that, uh, um, that India's role, even if it's uh, quote-unquote soft power role in Afghanistan makes Pakistan, and particularly the Pakistani military, extremely queasy. And that's a, that's a major irritant. And the irritant, I think, is only going to um, you know, get, get worse as the, the Afghanistan endgame plays out in the next few years. So my final point, you know, will there be another crisis by which I mean uh, a predominantly India-Pakistan crisis in the subcontinent again soon? 
1999, the, the Kargil War, like 2002, uh, after the terror attack on the Indian Parliament in New Delhi, uh, 2008, uh, after the, the Mumbai episode. Well, I certainly hope not. Um, I, um, I, and, but unfortunately, I do think that a, another crisis uh, in the subcontinent in the India-Pakistan relationship is highly likely in the next few years. Uh, I can't predict how exactly it will happen, what will bring it on, but I can just feel it in my gut that uh, it's coming and it's not going to be uh, pleasant. But I hope we'll escape the worst, but can't be sure. On that note, I'll end. Thank you. Thank you, Samantha. <laughs> Would you like to comment on Samantha's comment? Uh, as a Scottish Presbyterian, I thought it was my job to depress the audience. <laughs> but uh, I think the existential threat that Pakistan continues to perceive from India is itself proving an impediment to new thinking that's required in the region. And I think in that sense, uh, I have... I share some of the anxiety that, that you, you've described. Uh, I had the opportunity just a couple of weeks back to spend an hour with General Khani, the head of the army in uh, uh, Pakistan, and discuss with him the nature of the strategic threats he perceived. And he's a very seasoned politician as well as being a, a senior military figure. But the main thrust of our conversation was around the issue of the extent to which the existential threat to Pakistan is not so much the prospect of Indian invasion through Kashmir, but is the uh, extremist elements within Pakistani society that are now threatening uh, a state that has been weakened over many decades. And in that sense, I do think that there is a fundamental reconciliation to some of those realities that is required. Uh, part of the concern that I was expressing in my opening remarks was whether we will see political leadership worthy of the scale of the rethinking, reckoning, and response that is required in the face of these very profound challenges. Um, so Mantra is my friend and colleague, but I kind of lean more in the optimistic direction of Douglas Alexander's presentations in my own views, but we're not here to talk about my views. We'd like to provide now an opportunity for the audience to raise your questions. Um, we'll probably take do you want to do two or three at time? If we take them in groups of three, then I can avoid the difficult ones. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so three it would be. The man and the, you, you, and I saw a hand here, and the lady in the front. Thank you very much. Um, I would like to closely link what you have said by quoting Winston Churchill. Be an optimist. There's no much use of being anything else. And can I possibly ask the first question to... So, future foreign secretary uh, of this country. If you say that you would like to learn lessons from the past, how comes that you did not say anything in regards to new policies? You basically quoted uh, American politicians. You once again showed how close the United Kingdom is to the United States. Drone attacks is an issue. I have to say that there is a British perspective and an Indian perspective. But people in this country, Pakistan, feel about drone attacks is something which has not been addressed here. There is indeed a psychological impact on this drone attack, and I do not believe that when you kill one of these terrorists from the Akani network, with you, whom you suddenly start off warming up your relations all of a sudden, you can 
uh, improve uh, the situation. No, I do believe you're gonna get 10 or 20 more of those terrorists because of the psychological impact. The country Pakistan, from the very beginning, from the very outset, tried to survive. There was 1971, uh, East Pakistan me, uh, became I, Bangladesh. Yeah, but it's very important because I do believe that it's important to have also Pakistani sort of perspective on this. Certainly, and can I possibly also brief, say one please. thing to, to uh, Mr. Bose, one question. I do think it's very important also to, to solve the issue of Kashmir. And I do think that in that, this case, Indian as a bigger neighbor has to get on and do an initiative in order to solve this issue. Because obviously there are Muslims in majority, and this is closely linked to Pakistan's raison d'etre as a homeland of Muslims. Thank you. Can I remind you to make the, your comments brief and your questions direct so that it's easy for you to get an answer? Yeah. The, uh, the gentleman there, the microphone for him, please. Yes. Hi, Mr. Alexander. Thank you so Hi. much for uh, coming to the LSC. We really appreciate it. Um, as you might guess from my uh, accent, I am from the States. I'm here as a master's student in global politics. Um, and my question um, hits on something that you, that you touched on, I think, quite accurately. Um, I'm sad to say that uh, in the aftermath and the emotion of 9-11 um, and in the bin Laden raid, um, uh, public opinion in the states with regard to Pakistan is, is quite negative. Um, and uh, both political parties feel that way. Um, to be honest, I, I, uh, though I would frame it a little differently than, than the previous questioner, I, I fear that some of the policies that are being pursued right now by the current administration are not helping. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm a little concerned about the future of relations between the states and Pakistan, especially given the fragility uh, in the region. So my question is, uh, you mentioned that uh, you wanted the UK, uh, both now and in the near future, to play an important role in uh, encouraging diplomatic and economic ties between the states and Pakistan. So I was asking if you could lay out maybe some concrete steps that you would like to see taken uh, and potentially how the UK could, uh, could help facilitate that relationship and submitting there. Thank you. Thank you. Um, as a British Kashmiri, I'm probably sharing uh, the more sort of optimistic uh, views of uh, the chair. Um, just a sort of a quick question just to the panel to find out whether you think that there's a role that the UK can play in helping to support a strengthened judicial system in Pakistan and maybe is that a way um, that we could actually see um, Pakistan overcoming some of the challenges that it will face um, in the coming sort of decade and uh, maybe one for um, Douglas Alexander, do you think that Pakistan could benefit from a coalition government? Shall I try and answer them? Um, firstly to the colleague who quoted Winston Churchill, I, I will um, I'll quote Gramsci back to you that you should have pessimism of the intellect but optimism of the will. I think what I was endeavouring to do in the remarks that I made was to challenge some of the easy optimism that has frankly, uh, I think, informed too much policy making in recent years and be candid and honest as to the scale of the challenges that the region, Pakistan in particular, faces. I think one of the responsibilities you have, and I'm always open to how I can more effectively communicate this, 
is actually to leave behind preconceptions as to what politicians are going to say and actually listen to what politicians do say. Let me just read you the paragraph in relation to drone strikes. The dangerous product of this, dangerous product of this, is that some in Washington now seek to downgrade America's strategic relationship with Pakistan to a purely transactional one, and instead place even greater reliance on drone strikes to disrupt terrorist groups on both sides of the Durand line. That doesn't seem to me to be a measure of progress to say that America's ambition should be limited to drone strikes into a transactional relationship. And in that sense, that's why I did say, actually, this was what I endeavoured to do in government. It's senior Pakistanis themselves who tell me education is going to be the game changer. But the dilemma that we both face is that while you can have long-term investment in education, which is critical to the character of the country in the future, the problem is that ultimately, and this comes to the second point, it has to fall to politics to be the bridge between where Pakistan is today and where Pakistan has to get to quite quickly. Because if we either say a security-only response is adequate, it will fail, or if you have an education-only answer, it isn't quick enough. And actually that was in part why I was making a plea for stronger and clearer political leadership that does sell, tell some often difficult truths. And I think that the risk I was identifying in the relationship with the United States was not suggesting that there isn't a need for thought on both sides, but if the psychology within Pakistan is somehow to say, well, we are the victim, we are being blamed for the fact that after 10 years in Afghanistan, it has not proved the outcome that the United States wanted. And on the other hand, given the traumatic effect of 9-11 on the American psychology, uh, the discovery of Osama bin Laden in Abbottabad proves justification and popular support for both parties withdrawing to a security-only or transactional relationship with Pakistan, that's bad for both countries. And in that sense, what I was arguing for was actually a more constructive engagement. I do actually believe politics has to be the bridge, and while whether the United States or Britain or other friends of Pakistan can seek to support that endeavour, and I'll say a word about that in a minute, I was trying also to emphasise the centrality of the importance on Pakistan leadership. What do I think that we can do? One thing that I think that Britain should be encouraging the United States to do is not to retreat into a transactional security only relationship, but to maintain what Richard Holbrooke talked about as a strategic relationship. The Friends of Democratic Pakistan that was established, I do think, provides a vehicle for that. I also think the United Kingdom can be a strong and powerful advocate for regional engagement with Pakistan. If you look at how frequently, for example, President Zadari has visited Beijing recently, the effusive words about an all-weather friendship emerging between China and Pakistan and that being central to its continuing anxiety in relation to India. I think we need to encourage the United States to see a regional response both to Afghanistan and Pakistan being a central element of their foreign policy in the years ahead. And that sometimes, for example, involves engagement with Iran, difficult though that relationship is, and traumatic though that relationship is for the United States. And in that sense, I do think Britain does have a role to play, but I wouldn't wish to suggest that that role is, is a greater role than the responsibility on both the military and the, the civilian leadership within Pakistan to recognise the extent to which the world's changed. And I, I, have, I have to say a great sympathy with the point that you make in terms of the extent to which Pakistan has lost the benefit of the doubt amongst many of the American people. And what worried me in my most recent visits with General Kani and with others was the extent to which there was a sense of grievance based on a belief that this was, as I say, an excuse being offered by the military or political elites within the United States. 
and not yet a full recognition that whether for good or ill, what was being articulated by General Mike McMullen, by Hillary Clinton and by others, was actually a very authentic expression of where the American population reached when, in particular, they saw the individual they regard as the very embodiment of evil, Osama bin Laden, being discovered living in a compound in Pakistan. I think uh, I... Um, would you like to? Bit, sure. Because um, yeah. he, yeah. he, he referred to me. Sorry, forgive uh, me. Just one point. I missed the yeah. point on the judicial sure. system. I was trying to emphasise in my plea for civilian leadership that I was not advocating an individual candidate or an individual politician, but saying I think the responsible and effective course for friends of Pakistan like the United Kingdom is to support those institutions of democratic governance. And goodness me, if we've been reminded of anything in relation to the Arab Spring in recent months, is that the institutions of deep democracy don't begin and end with free and fair elections, but require an independent judiciary, protection of minority rights, human rights, and a range of legal safeguards. And in that sense, of course, we've seen with the lawyer strike and action that's been taken in Pakistan in recent years, that there has been extraordinary courage showed by members of the legal profession within Pakistan, and I think Britain should stand foursquare behind upholding the rule of law in the years ahead. Um, on the Kashmir dispute, I agree with you that uh, India should have a Kashmir policy in the serious sense, uh, one that goes beyond merely security measures and uh, operations. And it's unfortunate that uh, India doesn't have such a policy on Kashmir in the serious sense, at least not to the best of my knowledge. Um, it's definitely in India's national interest to have such a policy on Kashmir in the serious sense. Um, that said, um, there should also be a realization in Pakistan that uh, Kashmir is an independent subject, so to speak, and always has been. For example, in the most quote-unquote anti-India part of uh, the Indian administered Kashmir, the Kashmir Valley, that is, uh, the overwhelming majority opinion is in favor of uh, independence, and it's been like that, uh, more or less, for the past uh, 60 years. And also, there's a diversity of viewpoints and preferences you know, within Indian administered Kashmir and in Pakistan administered Kashmir also, uh, where there is a pro-independence population. So um, you know, one needs to you know, take a step back uh, in Pakistan, I think, and uh, acknowledge the independent subjectivity of Kashmir and the diversity of viewpoints in the disputed territory. I'm going to take um, one question from the gentleman in the front at the back. Pakistan indeed is a, has become a whipping boy of the world. Everybody talks about Pakistan. Mostly it has become, a, you know, current trend is that Pakistan is being talked about everywhere and people are not talking to Pakistan. People, people are, uh, the countries are talking to Pakistan through media, if at all they are talking to. It has become a tendency of the American leadership, it has become a tendency in most of the countries that they are talking to Pakistan through media or they are talking about Pakistan far away. Now when you are talking about the problems in Pakistan, you have to understand that Pakistan, this, this actually emanates from the very fact that the institutions in Pakistan have not been allowed to be strengthened. And why I think what Pakistan suffers from today is not just Pakistan's doing. I think you have to uh, see yourself also. You have to look at the two major period in which there were two dictators at the helm of affairs in Pakistan and at that time 
the entire Western countries, the entire Western world looked the other way. They allowed, they engaged with them because it was uh, their strategic interest involved in that region at that point in time. So they get along very well. Whenever it is, if you just look at the, uh, you look back and the, in the Pakistan politics, you will always find that whenever there is a civilian government or democratically elected government, there's always been much, you know, tough stance taken by the West for, for against that government. So I believe that unless you allow the civilian government to stay the course, unless you side with them, unless you support them, you expect the institutions in Pakistan to strengthen as quickly as you want. Thank you. So my, uh, it's not a question, it's just a comment which I wanted to make. Thank you. Well, thank you. The gentleman at the back and then, yes, okay. The one at the back, right at the back. Roger, Roger, after him, sorry. Um, I didn't see your hand, sorry, next round for you. That's right. Uh, the problem I've always uh, looked at is we, we've never asked the question, how did we get into the position we are at the moment? We seem to be um, looking at solutions without actually looking at history in terms of where we are and how we got here. Um, the Western countries, um, in my opinion, <coughs> have been uh, pushing down a lot of policies on uh, these countries, countries like Pakistan, uh, in order to have um, a system of governance that is a mirror to what we have here. People don't like being told what to do. People like working in cooperation. Is there a way the Western system here would work in cooperation with them? Not telling them what to do, but actually working hand in hand to find solutions in terms of how to solve problems. The chap with the glasses and the phone is lifting his phone up. Yeah, that's right. Next round. Thanks very much for the talk. Um, my basic question is, my tweets are blocked for this handle, for this hashtag, sorry. So they're not appearing in the search itself. Do you know why? Am I banned or something? Sorry. <laughs> Did you understand? <laughs> I don't think I, any of us understood your point or your question. Oh. <laughs> uh, I'm, a, I'm a technophobe, I'm afraid. <laughs> Can you put it in simple English, perhaps? Oh. oh, okay. <laughs> okay, so I think we can take. Tweet as oh, I wants. see. Ah, okay. So I think we can take one more question. Um, okay, the man. Yes. Thank you. Um, Mr. Alexander, um, you've highlighted a very important point that Pakistan needs to see some very, very strong central leadership to solve these challenges. Uh, and by that, you, uh, I think you very clearly mean uh, elected government-led leadership. But how do you expect that to arise when most of the, the G7 countries, especially the United States and probably the UK, which has very strongly fo followed American policy, has always supported the military, the same military that has taken Pakistan as a nation hostage for most of its history, and had both its hands and feet and stomach and everything else in the national treasury, officially taking away, um, uh, you know, uh, 30, 40 percent of, of the national exchequer and more unofficially. 
And more importantly, and this is the, the crux of the problem, you, you know, you're really stuck between a rock and a hard place. When the world's most powerful nation, especially vis-a-vis -vis Pakistan, that's the United States, has absolutely behaved like a rogue state in that it hasn't given two hoots about the development of a strong central leadership and has always supported military dictatorships, starting with Ayub Khan, the first one, all the way to, towards General Musharraf. Um, and, you know, it, it, it seems you really are stuck between a rock and a hard place. It's not impossible because on the optimistic side, uh, I'll conclude that similar things were needed in Indonesia and in Turkey, which both had exceptionally powerful militaries, yet very strong leadership emerged uh, amongst the civilian um, uh, elite there and, and was able to effectively deal with the military leadership. But with the U.S. always backing... And, and a host of other countries backing the military, how do you expect that to happen? Okay, let me um, probably deal with them in reverse order. In some ways, I would, I would really concur with your last point. I mean, if you look at Indonesia um, or Turkey, they are fabulous examples of where there has been a transition from a military-dominated political culture to effective civilian leadership. But that wasn't affected by the policy of the United States that was achieved by change within the country. And I think we have to be careful in our conversations about Pakistan to be respectful of the responsibilities upon Pakistanis themselves and not to seek to attribute all fault and all blame to other countries. That is without prejudice to the fact that, of course, if you look at the history of Pakistan over many decades, uh, there has been fault on a number of sides. Uh, I am glad that I speak for uh, the Labour Party today and not and don't have any brief to defend some of the policies that you describe over many decades. But I think the truth endures that it doesn't diminish by whatever route Pakistan finds itself in these circumstances, that there are certain responsibilities on friends of Pakistan, including the United Kingdom. But that doesn't diminish the responsibility on Pakistan's civilian leadership. And I think that when you visit Pakistan and see the scale of the challenge that the country is facing... I would defy many not to feel that there is a heavy burden of responsibility on political leaders to set out the vision that I described and to be able to liberate Pakistan from a history where too often in the past democratic politics has been seen as part of the problem and not part of the solution by some within Pakistan themselves. Now in that sense that's why I say we should be four square behind democratic institutions. And I think the most compelling account in terms of history that I've read recently in relation to this was Benazir Bhutto's final book um, on Islam, which talks at great length in terms of the challenge that Democrats within Pakistan have struggled with to assert authority uh, over the military, given the tortured history, the early death of Jinnah, and all the difficulties uh, that are described. But surely, given that we are meeting seven or eight months after the commencement of the Arab Spring, there is at least an opportunity for a new narrative to be written about Pakistan because we've seen old orthodoxies and, frankly, yes, old dictators challenged in the last six or seven months. But one of the most exciting aspects of the Arab Spring was it didn't emerge from speeches made in the House of Commons or certainly in the White House. It was through a demand for dignity, for affirmation from within those countries themselves and Pakistan at the moment, notwithstanding the continued heroism of many who stand for democracy, continues to need a quality of political leadership that can actually rise and surmount the challenges that are faced. 
in relation to should the tenor of that relationship be cooperation rather than direction, yes, I think that's true. But again, if you look at the way that relationships are changing geopolitically, I think even if the United States intended to, to direct Pakistan in the years to come, as I say, if you look at the frequency with which Pakistan is engaging with China, the, the old relationship wouldn't be on offer. And it's not coincidental, given the rise of India, the character of the relationship with China. But I think there does need to be an accommodation to certain changing global realities, one of them being the continued rise of China, both in the region and internationally. And in that sense, I think there is that opportunity for new terms of the relationship. On the final point in terms of, or the first point that was raised, shouldn't you not lecture at Pakistan but talk to Pakistan? Well, with respect, I was there a fortnight ago and met with not just General Kayani, given his continuing relevance in terms of the military and security apparatus, but President Zadari as well, a range of senior Pakistanis. I was also the British minister who doubled the aid programme to Pakistan. And actually, credit where credit's due, this is a government that within a couple of years, largest international aid programme anywhere in the world will be a programme with Pakistan. Now, this is a tough time to be making the case to the British people that the largest bilateral aid programme anywhere in the world should be with Pakistan. And it doesn't seem to me unreasonable to say to the British public, if we are asking British taxpayers to contribute to basic education, basic health care, the building of capacity within Pakistan, it is not unreasonable to ask what steps, for example, the Pakistani state is taking to ensure that a greater proportion of its population actually pays some tax at all. So if we're serious about cooperation, I think there does need to be reciprocity of respect and reciprocity of responsibility. And in that sense, I do think that if you look at the actions we took in government in terms of recognising the continuing responsibility to support Pakistan in the face of the great challenges it faces, not simply security, but development and poverty reduction challenges, we have been good to our word in that regard. But one of the central conclusions I drew on the basis of sustained dialogue, not just recently, but in recent years in Pakistan, is that development alone or a humanitarian response alone will not be sufficient. And certainly, nor will a security response alone be sufficient. And actually, Britain or the United States or China can't do Pakistan's politics for Pakistan. Ultimately, Pakistan needs a democratic politics that reflects the noble calling of politics at its best anywhere, which is to find shared solutions to shared problems. And I would respectfully suggest part of the shared problems that is faced is a recognition of the existential threat of uh, fundamentalist extremism within the boundaries of its own country. It needs strong political leadership to make the case that everybody within Pakistan society has a responsibility, including those who pay no tax at all. Uh, there is a continuing need to uphold those institutions of democracy, notwithstanding the troubled and difficult history and the strength of the military within uh, Pakistan historically. But ultimately, that leadership, as we've seen elsewhere in the Arab Spring, can't be stimulated externally. It can be supported. It has to be generated from within the society itself. The gentleman in the pink shirt at the top, then Roger right at the back, um, man with the beard, and this man in the front here. A second row, second person, yeah. First, yes, you go first. Hi, good evening. I just wanted to know if the panel had any thoughts about the security of Pakistan's nuclear weapons. Roger, that was very nicely brief and to the point. I'm Roger Montgomery of the uh, Asia Research Center, colleague. Uh, Mr. Alexander, in, in what ways will your policies be different from the Conservative Party's? 
Generally or specifically? <laughs> yeah, can you give us five, four or five specific examples, given that the, the election will be in 2015, or from what we've seen recently, perhaps even more I mean, sooner than that? Um, the second row, I meant second row people seated, yeah, thank you. Just, uh, it's uh, pa Pakistan always, the government of Pakistan always reminds me of uh, the Garcia Marquez novel, Autumn of the Patriarch, and it's never been a uh, civilian government in any real sense. And one of the issues that we know that we have to deal with Pakistan, we deal with not with Pakistani people, but we deal with the Pakistani government. And because it's always a military dictatorship, one of the, one of the things that one could plot, if you look at the history of Pakistan, is that when British influence on the Pakistan military receded in the 50s and the 60s, the conservatism in the military increased, which led to General Zia's coup and stuff. Why has Britain not utilized its in immense cultural influence on the Pakistani military to somehow dampen this increasing conservatism, which is now even out of their control, so that you have Haqqani groups and stuff, which were strategic assets, which have now become um, threats to Pakistan? Do you want me to go? Um, Okay, let me give you three immediate um, differences. Firstly, on foreign policy, a different emphasis on multilateralism. If you look at what William Hague has said in the last 18 months in terms of the orientation of conservative foreign policy, it is essentially to articulate diplomacy as bilateral relationships and to see the principal task of foreign policy being to support an export-led recovery. So it's basically bilateralism and selling stuff. Now, the difficulty with such a minimalist and, I think, reductionist view of foreign policy was it didn't, in, it didn't survive its first encounter with reality, which was the Arab Spring. And in that sense, they've been obliged, even in the last six or seven months, to begin to reconceptualize what a foreign policy looks like. But in that sense, I think if you look at the paucity of conservative government thinking on the role of the G20, on institutions of global governance, never mind its neuralgia in relation to the European Union, I think we would have a much clearer emphasis on the continuing importance of the multilateral institutions, flawed though many of them are, in finding those shared solutions to shared problems that we face. Secondly, trade policy matters, but it's not the same as foreign policy. And in that sense, when they say we want a strengthened bilateralism with the rising emerging economies, of course, we would share that ambition. Uh, but I think, as we've seen in the Arab Spring and elsewhere, trade policy is but one instrument in foreign policy, and there are circumstances in which hard power has to be used, but there are also huge and as yet unrealized potential for more effective use of strategic smart and soft power than the government understands at the moment. I don't think they've begun to understand the capacity of new technology to afford a genuine dialogue between state and people. It used to be the case that diplomacy was essentially statecraft, state to state. If you look at the use of social media in the Arab Spring, there is absolutely no doubt that there are new opportunities and new ways by which the United Kingdom could seek to have a dialogue, not with other states, but also with other peoples. 
Final change, of course, uh, as evidence this week is in relation to the European Union. I mean, this is a, a, a government that came close to having a nervous breakdown this week in the European Union, notwithstanding its continuing centrality to our economic prosperity and to future uh, concerns that we have. That's partly because of the character of the coalition agreement, where you have 60 to 70 hardcore Eurosceptics elected at the last election for the Conservatives. And... Uh, Europhilia within the Liberal Democrats, which means you end up not with a good compromise but bad government, where basically they just decide to sit it out on too many issues on Europe. But it's not simply that they are hamstrung in their engagement with Europe in a way that I genuinely don't believe uh, a Labour government would be. It is also that there is, a, there is an obsession in parts of the Conservative psychology about aspects of Europe that I think is unhealthy to a strategic and hard-headed engagement with the issues that Europe presents. And in that sense, I've said in previous remarks that the generational challenge of foreign policy for my generation is not so much the reach of Brussels as the rise of Beijing. And I think so deep is the concern within the Conservative Party for the reach of Brussels that it sometimes blinds them to the rise of Beijing. And I think if you look more broadly, the, the rebalancing of economic and geopolitical power that we're witnessing at the moment demands a much more sustained engagement than we're seeing from the coalition government at the moment. Um, remind me, what was the final point? <laughs> oh, in terms of the military. I, I suppose that turns on, do you believe that th that increasingly uh, conservative aspect, the idea that military officers would send one kid to madrasa, the predominance of uh, overt religiosity in terms of the conduct in Rob India and elsewhere. Is that generated within the military or is that a reflection of the broader society? And in that sense, I think that that, that I, I think is a different lens through which to see what undoubtedly has been a change within the, the Pakistan military. I would argue that looking at, for example, the rise of the madrasas across society has itself played itself back into what was a more secular-oriented institution rather than seeing it as being generated in terms of military-to-military -military dialogue or a, a failure to engage in officer-to-officer -officer contact. I actually It's interesting, General Kahane, who I met a couple of weeks ago, is likely to be the last head of the army who was trained in officer school in the United States. And there is a genuine concern in terms of what will be the consequence in terms of the core commanders of that approach. I would simply observe that um, 
one of the dilemmas that you face as somebody sincere in your commitment to the democratic institutions within Pakistan is given the enduring significance of the military, do you inadvertently preference the military by going to see the head of the army as a visiting politician or indeed facilitating the kind of contact that you describe? And I think one of the responsibilities on foreign governments, including the United Kingdom, is to try and calibrate carefully that judgment as to how to uh, ensure that in your dealings with the military as well as with the civilian politicians, the, the totality of your actions achieve the outcome that you're, you're seeking to achieve. Um, on nuclear weapons, um, as I sought to reflect in the introductory remarks I offered, that's one of the reasons why if anybody argued that Britain or other countries internationally could somehow just turn the key and walk away from Pakistan, that's not a viable option. If you look at some of the recent attacks that have taken place from violent extremists within the uh, headquarters compound in Rawalpindi itself of the Pakistani military, it's a source of deep concern, both the level of security breach that was achieved, the time it took to uh, secure the facility. Uh, there are people better qualified than I, given our position in opposition, who worry about these things, but clearly that's one aspect of both why Pakistan will continue to be of enduring significance to the global community and also why uh, in a narrow sense, we have a continued responsibility to try and engage whatever the dilemmas and difficulties of the relationship. Right. So the gentleman in the leather jacket and the one in the purple shirt and the lady here in the middle. Hi. Uh, uh, good evening. Um, about two weeks ago, the Telegraph reported on the front page that yet another uh, U.S. private agency um, by the name of Kestrel was fighting a secret war inside Pakistan. Um, this adds to the list of uh, the likes of Blackwater, XC, CIA, Special Operatives, and so on. Um, uh, what are your views, Mr. Alexander, with regard to um, these activities, these black op activities undertaken by the U.S. against the state of Pakistan? Hi, my name is Sydney Trainmanvin, an aid worker uh, in Pakistan. Um, you started t touching on tax issues uh, a little while ago, and just wondering uh, what you think the key things that uh, Western nations could do to try to spur um, tax reform uh, within Pakistan, or would it not be in the, in the interest of some Western nations because uh, that would erode a transactional relationship of providing aid for uh, other objectives? Could you pass the phone, uh, microphone to the lady here in the row before you? Hi, thank you very much uh, for your speech. My name is Hannah Sial. I'm a student barrister at Gray's Inn and also involved in launching a Pakistan development fund in the UK. It's an annex from a Canadian-based fund. Um, my question for you is, the reliance on the political leadership in Pakistan is obviously very high, but it is hugely and widely unpopular in Pakistan, the current government. How can UK and other countries assist free, fair and democratic elections in Pakistan? And what are your views on PTI slash Imran Khan's party, which is actually one of the largest parties right now that is gaining the support of the youth, which you've mentioned, the only glimpse of hope for Pakistan? Thank you. Okay, shall I answer yes. those? Um, 
Firstly, I, I can honestly say I didn't see the report in the Telegraph, so I apologise in terms of Kestrel. I'm not familiar with the, the uh, particular report. In relation to more generally uh, what the United States is doing uh, both on Pakistan's borders and within Pakistan, I was seeking to emphasise in my remarks the, the unsustainability of a security-only response. And while I don't dispute that there are very grave concerns within Pakistan in relation to uh, action by the United States. I'm equally clear that there would be overwhelming support in the United States for the action that the um, uh, the action that took place on the 2nd of May uh, in Abbottabad. And in that sense, that places a heavy responsibility on both the military and political leadership in both countries to find a better way forward than simply to be um, engaged in, in both defensively and, uh, and uh, in relation to each other, uh, arguing it out. So in that sense, I, I'm not familiar with the particular organization that you describe. I do recognize that it has, these operations have contributed to the mistrust which is very apparent in the relationship at the moment between the political and military leaderships. My concern is, however, it would be to diminish the significance of that distrust simply to attribute to, to a misunderstanding between the elites. There is actually deep differences between where the population of the United States are and where the population of Pakistan is on the way forward. Sorry. I would argue that that places a heavier responsibility on the political leadership to respond. Sorry, specifically, are you comfortable then with the fact that the uh, US may have boots, uh, US boots on the ground Well, it's quite, it's quite difficult to, to answer a question in relation to specific instances with which I'm not familiar. The specific situation with which I'm very familiar was the raid in Abbottabad on the 2nd of May. And I, I understand both the rationale uh, and the result of that raid. And I think there was widespread understanding here in the United Kingdom that action taken against bin Laden, given his central role in 9-11, was required and that the President of the United States, on the basis of the concerns that they had over a sustained period as to the integrity of the information they were sharing with the Pakistan government, led them to a decision to undertake the operation themselves. But in terms of welcoming the fact that Osama bin Laden is not in a position to facilitate attacks against United Kingdom citizens in the future, I absolutely welcome that. Let me make two other points. Sydney, in relation to your point on finance ministries and what can be done, there are two dimensions to this, I think. One is how do you build the technical capability of the exchequer function of any government? And as Development Secretary, we spent a lot of time doing that. It's not a particularly glamorous line of work for development expenditure, but it's actually vital in terms of building the technical capability of countries to be able to uh, garner income from their own population. But my sense is, in Pakistan, the issue is not one of technical capability alone, but is actually political will, not least given the powerful people who at the present don't pay any tax. And in that sense, I think the opportunity for constructive engagement is not simply on technical support and capacity building, but also to ensure that the clause and terms of the IMF agreement, which they have just concluded, which does require a significant increase in revenue raising, isn't simply words on paper, but is delivered as a result. They identified, in terms of the dealings with the IMF, IMF a significant increase in the number of people who would be uh, paying tax within a relatively short period of time. The first responsibility on the finance minister who I met with and discussed the dilemma is actually to make sure that that is delivered. Uh, 
The third point in relation to uh, how can we support free and fair elections, one of the things that we can do are to meet people not just within the government but beyond the government and on that most recent visit that I made to Pakistan I took the trouble to go to Imran's house to meet him and to discuss uh, his prospects both for his agenda and also the possibility of winning. I mean, listen, Imran is very confident that he's going to win the election, as you would expect of most democratic politicians a few months before the election. But his route to victory, if you like, is premised on repeating Bhutto's success in 1970, essentially riding a wave of the youth bulge that will overwhelm the traditional mechanisms by which dynastic parties have delivered votes in largely rural areas. And that is a tough thing to do in Pakistan. And in that sense, it seems to me that what we can do is speak up for free and fair elections to meet politicians who are in office and out of office. His challenge, it seems to me, is can he translate the mission that he has defined for himself into votes in the ballot box? And there are very acute challenges when, historically, the machines that have helped deliver votes in certain rural areas have been very closely associated with commercial, financial, dynastic ties for a sustained period but have been an, an essential element of past electoral success for parties. And if you're running saying we're not going to be part of the machine, then if you're able to overwhelm existing machines, that's a route to victory for you as a political party. If you aren't able actually to translate your message into votes, then actually it will be more difficult. So I can't prescribe what the outcome of the election is. It was certainly a fascinating conversation where he communicated his confidence that actually we were reaching a point where old allegiances were going to break down, the youth of Pakistan were going to express a desire for fundamental change. And actually, he had a very clear account of what he believes should be a different relationship, for example, with the United States, that would assist in the endeavour of dealing with violent extremism within the country. The lady at the back and the gentleman here and the lady with the red car. Um, thank you for the uh, talk. I have two, three comments and then I have uh, a suggestion. One of the things that you said were about the Haqqani network, it is said that Pakistan tries to maintain relationship with them because Pakistan is pretty much scared that the US might leave like they did before, after the Cold War ended, and then it was gonna be stuck with uh, um, a network that they have to deal with by themselves and it's gonna turn against them. Now, when situations like these happens, you know, um, when US left Iraq without giving any uh, reasoning behind it or the fact that it went to war, including UK went with it, and there was no justification given for it, and US pretty much left without any media hype created around it. So when you have situations like these happening, it is very hard to imagine a country like Pakistan, which is very small, not actually having such concerns. So I want to ask kind of a way that um, what is UK doing on such uh, instances and trying to stop that such instances happening when US and UK just leaves without actually giving any explanation to the world. Second thing is um, when you mention about drone attacks and the rhetoric that is created that um, these drone attacks will increase and it's because of Pakistan not uh, achieving certain expectations. Uh, I think it's very rhetoric because um, rhetorical because these drone attacks have been uh, very much rampant in when they started and still there as well. So there is pretty much now a justification created for drone attacks that now Pakistan is not actually uh, doing what it's supposed to and now that's why we're gonna increase them. And the question that I think 
really needs to be asked is why is it that a uh, uh, developing countries' lives, people of developing countries' lives, not as important as the people in developed countries' lives. Because if you compare the amount of people that have died in developed country uh, due to terrorist attacks and the people who've died due to drone attacks, it's a very massive difference. Um, one thing else, the suggestion that I had when you mentioned about education, um, I think it's a very naive policy to make that we're going to just double the aid and provide it to education because um, we've been hearing this, I um, mean if you look at it from development si studies uh, perspective, for decades and uh, it's not, I mean if, if there is a stringent budget for UK so it shouldn't just go in very um, broad perspective as education, it's pretty much washing your hands from um, your uh, a global responsibility in directing um, how countries are supposed to lead and when you use the same rhetoric when they don't do so. And so I, I wish that uh, UK has a much more substantial policy to create in order to direct um, Pakistan uh, in, in how the aid is used. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, my name is Bora. I'm, from, I'm a member of Labour Party but also I'm a member of the Turkish Republican People's Party. Uh, which is the main opposition party in the Turkish parliament. Um, as being a Turkish, I'm a natural friend of Pakistan, but also the founder of my party is the historical figure Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, who was a friend of Muhammad Ali Jinnah. So uh, Pakistan's future matters for every Turkish person and for everyone in the region. Um, I welcome all the comments in, uh, made by the panel, um, but we have got a strong emphasis here on the leadership in Pakistan, quite rightly so. Uh, but as again rightly mentioned, it shouldn't be specifically on the leadership, but also it should be on the democratic mechanisms and independence of judiciary, independence of media, uh, and all the, all the democratic guarantees that should be provided for the Pakistani people. But I would like to um, raise another issue, maybe that could be uh, another point to discuss, because as far as I know, there is a constitutional debate going on uh, as well in Pakistan in terms of um, the national unity of Pakistan, the regional governments, the, the influence of the regional governments in the future, um, the five constitutional um, the, the parts of the Pakistan. So um, I'm wondering your comments in the future for the Labour government uh, in the relations that could be built up between not only the central government in Islamabad but also with the reg regional governments to support democracy and, um, and the prosperous future for Pakistan. Thank you. Um, you talked about the diaspora, um, and I was wondering whether you think there are links between the conduct of British foreign policy in Pakistan and the building of cohesive or solidaristic British identities, including our commitment to our own democratic institutions, and if so, what that implies about how we ought to conduct our foreign policy in Pakistan. Um, let me try and answer them in um, the order in which they were asked. Firstly, if I'm honest, I don't think the principal concern shaping Pakistani attitudes on these issues is fear of American withdrawal as much as uh, continuing concern about India. And that's a judgment, but my sense is that that still weighs very heavily uh, in the Pakistani psyche. I'm, I'm I do think that one of the conceptual leaps that needs to be made 
is to recognise that violent extremism is not simply a threat to quote unquote the West, but is as an existential threat to Pakistan itself. And that doesn't prescribe what should be the approach that's taken. That's an important and legitimate conversation. But at a very deep level, there does need to be that understanding of the common threat. Now, if, as somebody's already reflected, if you look at the horrific number of Pakistanis who have lost their lives in recent years in relation to battling that violent extremism, Pakistan has suffered greatly. But my frustration that I was expressing was I don't think that's, that's widely enough appreciated and then followed through in terms of what the consequences for how politics could and should provide answers to that. Um, I simply don't accept that, that a programme that says we're going to double our aid to Pakistan is somehow policymakers washing their hands of Pakistan. I would be the last person to suggest that a development policy is an alternative to a foreign policy. I think the two are complementary, a diplomatic policy and a development policy. But I would also be cautious about some of the language in terms of we shouldn't be directing Pakistan. I don't think that should be Britain's aspiration. I think it should be supporting those democratic institutions and the shared objectives that we have. And I do believe that there are genuine and continuing shared objectives that we face between our two countries. In relation to regional government, obviously that's a judgment for the Pakistani people themselves in terms of what the best constitutional architecture for their country is. But having travelled extensively in Pakistan, the sheer scale of the country means that there needs to be meaningful engagement with the level of government that exists at the level of the Punjab or Sindh or elsewhere because these are huge entities with very significant impacts on the lives and opportunities of people within them. Uh, in relation to the diaspora, our two countries are bound together by not just ties of family and friendship but shared even if at times difficult history. And in that sense I suppose the character of the relationship inevitably impacts on how the country is viewed. That's in its boldest terms I was trying to suggest by making clear that it isn't an option for the United Kingdom to say the challenges that Pakistan faces are those of Pakistan alone, partly because of those ties and the continued proximity and contact, partly because of the nuclear weapons of which I spoke, and partly because we learned a very painful and harsh lesson on 9-11 that people in distant lands can have a profound and destructive impact on the lives of communities many thousands of miles away. And in that sense, uh, I think, of course, the character of our relationship reflects the diaspora community. But I think it's only one of the elements that should shape our thinking in relation to uh, Pakistan. In relation to the United Kingdom, I think we have a continuing obligation to build that strong case of community of which you spoke. Um, and I think it would be a disservice to the Pakistani community to see them as being somehow apart from that endeavour. Vital and, and inclusive element of that continued work by all of us. Thank you. I, I think I'll have to stop now because it's um, in spite of um, the hall not being full, because you've been com competing with Diwali, your birthday, and the IMF. <laughs> so, but however, the you know the rapid um, continuous array of questions indicate how important this topic mm. is and the great, great interest that exists in this topic. So thank you all for your questions. Thanks to Sumantra for his valuable comments and thank you very thank much you. and we hope you'll come back again. Thank and you.